0: Good morning, everyone. Yeah, that's great. You all seem awake into it. Obviously, the first two speakers are interesting. All right, we've looked at how the Lord Jesus Christ had two great passions, one for his father and one for those who would save for the kingdom. And as we looked before, the Lord wanted to save as many people as he possibly could for the kingdom. And his motive was very simple, great love for his father and for those who would be saved for the kingdom. We're only going to look at one particular instance. In John chapter 8, it is a woman who has a serious problem. It is a woman who has deeply fallen into sin, deeply fallen into sin, And yet the Lord still has a great passion to turn her around. And we're going to see how the Lord does this with a brilliant blend of judgment and love. And brothers and sisters, we just wish that we could have this same sort of balance. The background is in the chapter before, chapter 7 and at verse 40, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Lord has given some brilliant exposition. People are saying in verse 40, is he the prophet that Moses talked about? Others dared to say, maybe he is the Christ. And despite the fact there were different opinions, everyone agreed that it was brilliant and they were on his side. And as a result of that, the religious leaders want to kill him. At the end of verse 19, you want to go, chapter 7, verse 19, you want to kill me. Again, in verse 32, at the end of... John 7, verse 32, they wanted to take him. Again, in John 7 and at verse 44, they would have taken him. Even in this chapter, John chapter 8 and at verse 59, they attempt to stone the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of the religious leaders come together in the chapter before, in John chapter 8, verse 45 to 52, how are we going to handle the Lord? We've tried a few times to take him, that has been unsuccessful. Perhaps the best thing to do is to badly embarrass him and hopefully get him punished by the Romans. And so they put into plan this, this particular way of debting Jesus. Now, notice how verse 53 concludes. Chapter 7, verse 53. Every man goes to his own house and really chapter 8 and verse 1 should be included in the chapter before. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and why did he go there? He went to Gethsemane to spend all night in prayer to his father to handle the evil of these men. And so he gets up the next morning knowing that they are going to try and get him. How are they going to get him this time? He'll find out. He's there early in the morning and he comes into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. So here the Lord, perhaps a little unusual, perhaps we're not expecting this, but the Lord is seated and all around him again is a huge crowd, hundreds and hundreds of people you would expect and they likewise have seated themselves to hear the Lord's exposition. He is on fire. And so they are sitting there absolutely wrapped with what the Lord has to say and they are interrupted as these scribe and Pharisee thugs drag this poor, crying, embarrassed woman. Verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman, literally a wife, and forced her into the middle of the crowd. If there were, say, 3,000 people there, that's a huge area, virtually the size of a football field, packed with people. And it would take quite some time to get this woman and force her through the crowd. And it says, and they set her in the midst. It's deliberate and it would take time. It's a very well planned setup. They've been watching this woman for a while. They find out that this is what she's doing this very evening. They wait till the right time. They kick the door in. They grab her and bring her to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say unto him, verse 4, Master, it's not hearsay. This woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Moses in the law commanded us that we should stone her. But what do you think? There's no doubt about this particular case. Lord, what do you say? And literally they were asking him to pass sentence as a judge. The Lord could see they were not interested in morality at all. All they wanted to do was to embarrass the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, how would the scribes and Pharisees normally handle this situation? Any ideas on that? How would they normally handle the situation of a person who has been caught in the act? How would they handle that? Any ideas? OK, so point one, they were not allowed to stone people. If they were allowed to stone people, would have the scribes and Pharisees done that in this case? What are our thoughts on that? Most of us would be tempted to say, yes, they probably would have. Well, brothers and sisters, according to the commentators, in actual fact, the scribes and Pharisees wouldn't have stoned someone for adultery, even if they'd been allowed. So, in a sense, they're incredibly hypocritical. All they are worried about is how they could embarrass the Lord Jesus Christ and they felt there was only two answers, stone her or not stone her. If the Lord had said stone her, they'd say great, they'd rush to the Romans and say here is Jesus Christ, an up and coming teacher who is suggesting to his numerous followers to kill people for not keeping Jewish law and Jesus would be punished severely. That's their aim. Verse 6 says, this they said, tempting him that they might accuse him. And the word accuse means to charge with an offence, to accuse before a judge. There was a double-pronged attack if the Lord Jesus Christ said stone her. First of all, they would go to the Romans. But then if the Lord says, yes, I believe she should be stoned, they'd say, good Jesus, I want you to go to Deuteronomy 22 verse 23. Let's have a look at that. Deuteronomy 22 and at verse 23 they would say yes Jesus this applies to you we believe in actual fact this applies to your mother you're going to see the second part of the attack of these Pharisees and this comes out in what they say a little bit later Deuteronomy 22 verse 23 that if a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband and a man find her in the city and lie with her then he shall bring them both out unto the gate of the city and you'll stone them with stones that they die the damsel because they, she cried not being in the city and the man because he hath humbled his neighbour's wife so thou shalt put away evil from among you and they hoped Jesus would say yes this woman should be stoned and they would say Jesus Your mother should have been stoned because that's how you were conceived. This incident was linked to what was going to be a very bitter personal attack on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the proof they had that in mind is when we go to John chapter 8 and at verse 19, you can see the train of thought of these evil men. John 8 and at verse 19 They say unto him, where's your father? This applies to you, Jesus. No one knows who your father is. Verse 41, you do the deeds of your father and they say, we weren't born of fornication and the implication is like you were. And look how these evil men conclude in verse 48. You can see this is what they had in mind. The trap doesn't work, but they still think these things and they come out virtually in this chapter, verse 48. The Jews say, you're a Samaritan. That man was a Samaritan. Your father is a Samaritan. You can see what these evil men had in mind. Of what they intended to say to our Lord. All right, what's the second alternative that would trap the Lord Jesus Christ? And that is obvious. If the Lord Jesus Christ said, no, don't stone her, they would say to the crowd, here's this man who thinks he's got all the ideas about the law of Moses and he is not keeping the law of Moses at all. He's a false person. He's interested in gluttony, wine-bibbing and being a friend of sinners and adulterers. And we're now going to see how the Lord brilliantly and compassionately handles this situation. You picture the scene. There is the Lord seated down. Around him is the crowd also who are sitting down. The Lord looks up at the Pharisees who are standing And he could not believe the look on their faces, the arrogant look, the half-smile, the gloating. We've got him. And he looks at these men who are supposedly the upholders of Moses' law and they couldn't care less about that or the woman. If it was such a big issue, speak to the Lord privately. No, no, no. It's all about embarrassing the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and particularly the sisters, picture you are the woman. What's she doing? She's petrified about what's going to happen to her. She's crying. She probably has barely got any clothes that she's holding on to around her. She wishes the earth could open up and she would be swallowed alive and the Pharisees were totally insensitive to her shame. You've got to remember the Lord is a righteous, holy, sensitive, compassionate person and I don't believe he could bear to look at the scene in front of him. He could not bear to look at the shame of the woman and he could also even more so not bear to look at the hatred and the triumph of these evil Pharisees. And so therefore the Lord is very, very deliberate. Verse 6, he stooped down to the ground and literally kept on writing on the ground. Now why? Why does he keep on writing for quite some time? These scribes and Pharisees were very, very irate and they kept aggressively questioning the Lord. Come on, answer. Can't you answer? Come on, you're supposed to know all about the law. Answer us right now. Oh no, it's better to bend over. It's better to not look at them. It's better to let them continue to rant and to rave until they calm down. But more importantly, the Lord bends down and writes on the ground to give everyone time to stop and think. Scribes and Pharisees needed time to stop and think. Should we be doing this? Will this backfire? Will we end up being humiliated? In actual fact, I think he gave them the opportunity to get out of what's going to be a very embarrassing situation. He gave the woman time to reflect. What have I done? The crowd to just look and to learn. All right, brethren and sisters, what did Jesus write on the ground? Any suggestions? Nothing. You think nothing. What does everyone else think? Their names? Any other ideas? their sins. So we're getting all sorts of different ideas of what was written down, right? There's a quote in Jeremiah 17, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed and they that depart from thee will have their names written in the ground or the other suggestions you have said, the names of the accusers and their particular sins. But There's one problem with that and the biggest problem is we say that it was written in the dust but there was no dust in the temple. The Jews were meticulously clean and you can be guaranteed that the ground was paved marble. The other thing is you've got to remember if the Lord Jesus Christ is writing something down, the people watching him would have to see that upside down. You'd have to be pretty clever to realise what the Lord was reading was writing if he's doing that upside down. You picture this as going on, right? You're part of a huge crowd, probably two or three times bigger than this auditorium there's the Lord in the middle he is sitting down and you are sitting down as well now if the Lord does this and starts to write on the ground the people right up the back would say what's going on hey what's going on and they would pass the message to the next person find out what's going on back to the next person what's going on back to the person sitting right up here at the front and he can see what Jesus is doing so he passes the message back. What do he say? Passes the message back. What do he say? Passes the message back. What do he say? Till finally it gets right to the back of the, of the crowd. Now what would be the message? What's Jesus doing? What's the answer? What would you say if you're in the crowd? What's this guy up the front saying? What is Jesus doing? It says it in the verse. Verse 6. You're at the front and you've got to describe what he's doing. What is he doing in verse 6? He is writing, what with? With his finger, what on? And what is the ground made of? On stone. Ah! And instantly everyone in the crowd would realize what the Lord is doing. He is writing with finger on stone. And what would every Jewish mind go to? The Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God on stone. And I believe that's what the Lord is doing. Even if you can't see what he's actually writing, you would know by implication what he is writing. And he is writing down, I believe, the Ten Commandments. And the Lord is writing them down. He's saying, yes, one of those is adultery... A dreadful sin. But Pharisees, remember, there's another nine commandments. And he who has offended in one has offended in all. Oh, you men may not have committed adultery. Although they probably had. had, Because the Lord says this is a wicked and an adulterous generation. But the Lord said, I can guarantee you have been guilty of the sin of murder. In the chapter before, you've tried to kill me. Now, verse 7 says... They continued to ask him. The Pharisees look at each other. You beauty, we've got him. He hasn't got a clue how to answer. And they kept on asking him to pressurize him to make a foolish answer. Look, the Lord wanted to change everyone. He wanted to change the Pharisees. But particularly, he wants to change this woman. And he is attempting to turn her around with a perfect balance of love and judgment look what verse 7 says. He lifted himself up. Literally, he unbends himself. So, he's right over. And everyone would look at the Lord finally unbending himself and look at these Pharisees straight in the eye and says, He who is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. All right? You've asked me a question does the law of Moses say that adulterers have to be put to death? The answer is yes. But I want you to go back to Deuteronomy 17 and at verse 5 to 7 because there's a special way in which it works. If you were going to carry out the stoning of an adulteress, there's a very special procedure in which it works. And so he says to them, by using that term first cast the stone. He's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let's have a look at that. Deuteronomy seventeen 1, 7. At first you think, well hang on, this is not talking about adultery. Verse 2 to 4 is talking about idolatry. Verse 3, when you go and serve other gods. But in verse 4, and if it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently. Behold, it is true and certain, this case was true and certain, that abomination is wrought in Israel. And that word abomination means that which is morally disgusting, i.e. adultery. Okay, it's a parallel case. It's a situation of someone who has certainly committed adultery. It applies straight to John 8. This is what you are to do, verse 5. Then... You'll bring that man or that woman who hath committed that wicked thing. Notice that, bring the man and the woman. Why have they only brought the woman who has committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and thou shalt stone them with stones till they die. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, and you can be guaranteed the scribes and Pharisees would make sure two or three saw them in the very act, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of just one witness, he shall not be put to death. And this is the issue. The hands of the witnesses shall first circle at, be upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people, and you'll put away evil from among you. That's very powerful. What verse 7 is saying is the first stone has to be thrown by the witnesses. If you're going to accuse someone, you must feel the full responsibility of giving evidence Because at the end of the case, you're not just giving evidence. You're the executioner. And scribes and Pharisees, the ball is in your court. You are supposedly the upholders of the law. You are the ones who've got this woman. You are the accusers. Well, then go ahead and obey the law and be the executioners and throw the first stone. And you can see brilliantly the tables are turned and now, if they go ahead and throw the stone first, they're in danger of being brought before the Romans themselves. Come back to John chapter 8. John 8 and verse 7, he changes something. What is changed in verse 7 when he's quoting Deuteronomy 17 verse 5 to 7? Deuteronomy said the witnesses shall first throw the stone. The Lord quotes that but he changes one word. Who are the ones who are to throw the stone here in verse 7? Exactly. He changes witnesses and he puts a little bit more bite on it. He who is without sin, he who is sinless. And Barnes suggests he who is sinless in regard to the sin of adultery. Again, remember, brothers and sisters, at the same time, he's trying to change the woman and the Pharisees. Now, not for a second does the Lord say as a general rule that you have to be sinless in passing judgment in the ecclesia. Otherwise, our arranging board would say, well, I'm not sinless, I can't do a thing. And if that was the case, our ecclesia would be in chaos. There's a particular issue in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, you have to make a serious decision in regard to serious sin. And the Lord says there's got to be five points that you must take into mind if you're making a serious decision about serious sin. Number one, do not expose the sin for your own benefit, point one. Point two, the best results will come if it's not done in a public forum. Point three, in making the decision, be aware of your own unworthiness. Point four, always do it with love. And point five, always try and save the person for the kingdom. And if you've got those five points, then your decision will be better. And the Pharisees did not have one of those five points. And so the Lord, in verse 8, bends down completely and keeps on writing. And the Pharisees are looking very red, very embarrassed, very foolish. In their haste to get the Lord Jesus Christ, they forget, forgot that the Lord said the accuser had to be the executioner. And the poor old scribes and Pharisees are standing up on their own in the middle of a huge crowd and they're all wondering, are they going to throw the first stone? And the Lord looks down. It is wonderful, his attitude. He had no desire to witness their humiliation. If someone was having a go at us, we'd be watching with wide eyes. This is great. The tables are turned. But the Lord does not do that. He doesn't accuse anyone. He leaves it to the scribes and Pharisees to decide for themselves, and they are left standing in the middle of a huge crowd and in verse nine, when they heard it, they were convinced by their own conscience. There's one word that the Lord said: "He who is sinless, throw the first stone, and they all started to ask, "Am I sinless in regard to the sin of adultery?" Or am I sinless in regard to any of the Ten Commandments that the Lord keeps writing on the ground? And we've got a very rare occasion where scribes and Pharisees are convicted out of their own conscience. That expression, convicted out of their own conscience, according to Thayer, means it's used with a suggestion of shame and embarrassment and they show their guilt by leaving the oldest or the most honoured first. And perhaps those with a greater understanding are more aware of the more subtle sins like pride and envy. And what an incredible scene. The most venerable scribe and Pharisee leaves first and then they're all gone. The Lord said it was an adulterous generation led by this many. We read at the end of verse 9, the woman was standing in the midst. That was unbelievably difficult for this woman. The scribes and Pharisees have all left, and you've got a crowd of many hundreds of people, and all of them are sitting down, and their eyes are boring in on the woman. Brothers and sisters, you think that's easy to stand there? I can tell you it's not. I know this from bitter experience. I went to a big combined weekend. There were hundreds of people in the audience. They went through the normal order and it was different to the way we're used to doing things. At our ecclesia, you have the hymn and then the prayer. So I'm standing there in the audience singing the hymn and then I get ready for the prayer. And I think, where's the brother who's offering the prayer? And then I look and everyone is on their seats. And I can guarantee you I was sitting that quick it wasn't funny. Boom! And my face was bright, bright red. If you're in a crowd with hundreds of people who are sitting down, it is very difficult to remain standing. It is quite remarkable what this woman does because you think about it. Her accusers, these rough Pharisees that have grabbed her, are gone. The Lord is looking down, right down on the ground. He makes sure of that. She feels totally embarrassed in tears. And every feature of her body was to run off. If not, just squat down. And yet it is quite remarkable in verse 9, she stood there where she was and the Lord still kept on writing. He deliberately delayed. Yes, of course, to give the scribes and Pharisees plenty of time to leave. But also, if this woman has got second thoughts to allow her to get away. And it is beautiful in verse 9, Jesus is left alone. He's the only one in the middle that is left. He is the only one who is sinless. He's the only one who is not guilty. And finally in verse 10, the Lord unbends himself. You can picture this. There he is, right down on the ground and he, he, he already knows what's going on. He doesn't even have to look. He knows full well the woman is standing there and the scribes and Pharisees have gone. But he wants the crowd to realise what's going on. And slowly he sits up and he looks around. Oh, scribes and Pharisees are gone. Oh, you're still there. See, he's making a point now for the crowd, for the people. And he says in verse 10, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And the word condemned means to pass sentence by carrying out the execution and throwing the first stone. And she says, No man, Lord. And Jesus says unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. And the word condemn means to pass sentence or judgment. It's very important to not misunderstand what the Lord is saying here in verse 11. He's saying, I'm not going against the law and saying that adultery is okay. Neither am am I saying that if the scribes and Pharisees say it's okay, well then I agree. You've got to remember the whole situation. Remember what's happened. The scribes and Pharisees brought this woman to me They want me to be a judge according to the law of Moses. Okay, I'll sit here as a judge. And I've seen the whole scene as it is a courtroom. I've seen two or three accusers who've actually seen the woman in the act. Their testimony agrees with each other. It's a closed and shut case. The case, therefore, is ready to go to the next stage. The woman can be condemned now. But as the judge, I cannot do anything until the witnesses throw the first stone. The witnesses aren't even here, so therefore I can't pass judgment. And you think, well, there you go. That's the end of the story. But brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ does not want to win a debate on the law. His main aim, as is the case all the way through his life, is to turn this woman around. It's very powerful what we've got here. It's how to deal with someone who has committed a serious sin or more importantly, what do we do when we've committed serious sin? There are three things that seem to indicate this woman was inclined to change. She stayed there. She stood there in the midst If she was an unrepentant sinner, she would have run for a life while she had the chance and continued to live a life as before. Just be a bit more careful this time that you're not caught. She stood there. Why? Because she said, I acknowledge I'm guilty. That's the first issue. She didn't even squat down. I've done it and I'm prepared to accept the shame and the embarrassment. Point number two, there are no excuses. And point number three comes out very powerfully in verse 11. No man, Lord. Notice what the scribes and Pharisees say in verse 4. Master, the cold formal title, she calls him Lord, a term of respect and love. When do we see those two terms before? Lord" and "master used in the same context? Exactly. In the upper room, the disciples use the term "Lord." Judas uses "master." This woman uses the term that the close disciples use of their Lord. But she still hasn't gone through the full process of change. And so the Lord says at the end of verse 11, Go and sin no more. Generally, the Lord would say, Look, your faith has saved thee, or your sins have been forgiven thee. But he cannot say that here. Why? Because the woman still had to go through the process of forgiveness. Look, the Lord agreed that the law said, Adultery is a serious sin, and if you commit adultery, you should die. That's backed up in the New Testament. The New Testament says if you continue in adultery, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The only way to not be killed for the sin of adultery is to have the attitude of David, to realise what you've done, to realise you should be dead for what you've done and then to plead for mercy and forgiveness and be determined to never sin in this way again. The Lord leaves it up to the woman. He doesn't force her. He says, I'll leave it up to you to decide what way you want to go. And he hoped the woman would go home and pray to her father to feel broken hearted, to feel filled with shame, to realise she should be dead, to realise the hurt to her family, to her husband, but particularly the way in which she has hurt her God and to plead for mercy and forgiveness, and to have that determination that she'll never sin in that way again. And then the Lord hoped that she would come back, after going through this process of her own free will, and join the little company of women who loved the Lord so much, because the Lord had forgiven them of so much. Brothers and sisters the Lord is showing us how to deal with serious sin in ourselves and in other people. And what we've got in John chapter 8 is a brilliant blend of love and judgment. And if you found yourself in a situation of serious sin, you likewise have to realise how bad it is The Lord is encouraging us that we can change no matter what we've done. We realise the third point, that if we do change, God will be merciful. And brothers and sisters, what we've got here is a little glimpse of God's mercy in the way in which Jesus treats this woman. We get a little glimpse of God's mercy in seeing the gentle way in which he deals with this woman after serious sin. That's the God that we come before. And fourthly, if we change, we have to be determined to never sin in that way again. Brothers and sisters, on a Sunday morning when we come before our Lord, All of us are like the woman who is standing before our Lord. All of us have a sense of shame for what we've done. But when the Lord looks at us on a Sunday morning, he is looking at us with this great passion to save us. He is looking at us with mercy and with gentleness. And he is positively inspiring us that it doesn't matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. And brothers and sisters, when that happens on a Sunday morning, we are absolutely blown away with love and gratitude and we say, look, I don't want to disappoint my Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. And every Sunday morning the Lord looks at us with great encouragement, with great gentleness and with great love and says to us, go and sin no more.